I'm Tyler. I'm Joy. And this is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the Book of Esther. And we're, we're kind of flying in missing man formation. Taylor is, uh, is out of town this week. But what a privilege to, to welcome Sister Joy D. Jones to be our guest as we cover this, this book of Scripture called Esther. Uh, so, as we jump into this, into this story of Esther, let's just talk through a couple of the things that make this particular book fairly unique, not just in the Old Testament, but in, but in all of Scripture. So, what are some things that come to mind? Honestly, the first thing that comes to mind is the hiddenness of God. Because throughout the chapters of Esther, I counted over 50 times that we see Esther's name, and I counted over 50 times that we see Haman's name, both key characters in this in this story, but God is not mentioned once. Interesting. Which is very rare. I mean, here it is a book of the Bible, and you don't get his name one time. And so it makes you think, well, then is the book inspired? Or it, is it does it belong? Does it fit in? Or is it not really scripture? Is it safe to say that God is kind of in, incognito here? He, he's kind of behind the scenes. Yeah. He, he's kind of hidden. You have to look for, for these things, and you're going to find a whole series of little uh, circumstances that might look like happenstance, like a coincidence, but they all line up almost as if an invisible hand is putting some dominoes in place for the right moment to then unfold this beautiful story. That's such a good prelude, because that allows you to watch now as we go through these chapters, watch for those moments. Yeah. Watch for those experiences, because they're there. Yeah, one of the other things about Esther is when Joseph Smith came to this book in his translation process, as he's revising the Bible, this is one of a very small handful of books, ironically including Ruth as another one, where Joseph Smith didn't make a single change. There's There are no JST footnotes and there's no uh, additions or subtractions in his manuscript of the translation of the Bible. So. Pretty fascinating. Very fascinating. So, Sister Jones, something else that's fascinating in this book is, is the place that Esther takes in the history of the House of Israel. She would be compared to some other characters that we'd be very familiar with, yes. symbolically. Yes. She's truly a counterpart to Joseph sold into Egypt. If you think about the fact that both of them were well received by a king, they actually went before a king and were very fondly received, and we'll talk more about that. And because of that, she's going to be able to deliver all of all of the Israelites who happen to be living there. And and quite frankly, this is probably a good spot to help us understand where she fits, because Esther, so you have all of the five books of Moses, the Torah, those Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then you get into the history portion, where it starts with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then the two books of Samuel, then the two books of Kings, and then the Chronicles are a retelling of that same time period. As part of that history, you'll remember the ten tribes got carried away captive to the north by Assyria back in 721. Then you get the southern two tribes getting carried away captive to Babylon at the time right after Lehi and his family left Jerusalem. Well, then Babylon gets overthrown by Persia 
And when Persia comes to town, they then send some of the Jews back to rebuild Jerusalem. The reality is, is most of the Jews did not return. Most of them actually stay in Babylon and start spreading up into Persia and Media, which is where our story takes place today. So, this group coming back was the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and now we get the story of Esther, which is taking place up in here. Esther is the very last book of our history books. So, she's one of the latest uh, stories that's going to take place in the Old Testament. After Esther, now we jump into the section of the Old Testament called the Prophets, and now we're going to go back into time, into the Samuel and Kings and Chronicles time period, and we're all over the map between Israel and Judah, and it's the, the, the timeline goes out the window once we leave the book of Esther. So, she is our final historical book, the last one to take place, and she's in this group that didn't go back to Jerusalem, and surrounded by lots of Jews who aren't quote-unquote home in Jerusalem, and yet the Lord is going to work through her to preserve this branch of the house of Israel from destruction. So, that's kind of the overview of where we are as we jump into chapter 1. Let's jump down to chapter 1, where we see King Ahasuerus, a ruler over from India through to Ethiopia. Um, there were 127 provinces, and he gathered all the leaders and had a great celebration, and um, actually 180 days. That's quite a celebration. That's, I, I don't know if, if, if you threw a party that lasts a half a year, but <laughs> this guy, he's trying to show how rich and how oh, prosperous, prosperous he is. Well, yes. 180-day feast will do it. That was a pretty good celebration. So, with that celebration came a great deal of wine. Uh, it says in verse 7, gave them drink in vessels of gold and royal wine in abundance. So, much drinking is going on, and suddenly the king decides, I'd really like my wife to come. I want to show everyone her beauty. So, Vashti is, is uh, contacted by seven of his chamberlains that serve the king. They go and say, the king wants you to come. For some reason, she chose not to be obedient. She said no. And it's in verse 11, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment. And the interesting thing is that that is surprising stubbornness in that day. Oh boy, in that time period, in that culture, that's a big deal. It was very dangerous, actually. And uh, women were meant to be subservient to men at that time, so she was making a point. And I see it in two different ways. She could have just said, I don't want to. I'm, she was having a feast with all the women, and maybe she said, no, you have your party, I'll have mine. But I think it was more than that. I think she realized that all of these men were drinking, that her appearance in that room would be somewhat uncomfortable, somewhat inappropriate perhaps. Um, the women of the Middle East are very modest uh, in their behavior and their dress, and I just don't think she felt comfortable going and being a showpiece. That's a that good point. point. It's fascinating as, as you look through the history of time and the different cultures throughout those various dynasties and kingdoms and, and monarchies, how 
different races of people were treated and how different genders, how they interact. And I guess what I could say is, thank heaven that we live in the dispensation of the fullness of times where we have restoration scripture that, that teaches this doctrine that all are alike unto God, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And it, it was never intended to be a superior, inferior kind of relationship between the genders. It's, and, and what a blessing to live today with living prophets who teach us to strive for equal partnerships in marriage, for instance. There's not a lot of equal partnership going on no. in chapter one here no. in this culture. And, and your point is a really valid one that maybe Vashti is, is a woman a little bit ahead of her time or a lot yes. ahead of her time yes. saying, no, this isn't appropriate and I'm not going to do it. And I think it's key to remember here, here is one of those moments where our Heavenly Father, his fingerprints were there because it opened the way for Esther. That, was, that had to happen in order for Esther to eventually become the queen because Vashti was removed. The, these men were very upset. These leaders were upset and said, we've got to do something about this because she's setting a really bad precedent. We don't want all of the women of the land seeing her saying no to the king and then them thinking, well, I can do the same with my husband. And so, so they said, we've got to do something about this. <laughs> and so they... they depose of Vashti, so she's removed, and so this is one of those dominoes that is put in place, and we can learn lessons from each one of these individual elements of the story, but at the end of the day, you're seeing that even though God isn't mentioned in this book anywhere, you're seeing his hand. You're seeing the fingerprints, as you said. I love that. You, you can see signs of him doing his work from behind the scenes. So now we get to chapter 2, and thus begins this process of Ahasuerus trying to seek a new queen. So he, he seeks out all the fair virgins in all the land, starting in verse 2, and they're collecting all of these, these young maidens, and notice… Something of a beauty contest, I it, believe. Yeah. And in verse 5, it says, Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And it tells you that he's a Benjamite. Remember that southern kingdom of Judah has largely tribe of Judah and Benjamin? Well, in this case, Mordecai is a Benjamite. And he had been carried away from Jerusalem, his, his ancestors. And notice what he's done in verse 7. He brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. So in the King James Version, it would make Esther his cousin. In other translations, it shows her as being his niece. I think it's safe to say she's a close relative. Yes. So Esther comes forth then. She becomes one of these, these uh, fair young virgins that is being prepared to come before the king. And she was brought into the king's house. And I want you to note in the end of verse 8, uh, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women, and the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him. And as you read through this chapter, you see how she influenced all the people that met her. They felt her kindness, they felt her goodness, and they liked her. She was, she, they were very fond of her. And, um, and then at the end of verse 9, it says, he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. So she's already making an impression. She's standing out 
in a very special way. And, and the amazing thing is, is nobody has any idea that she's a Jew. They, they don't know her background. Because keep in mind, back then, there have been so many conquests between Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Media and the Philistines on the far uh, west and Moab and Edom. And there's this, it's this mixture and milieu of all these different peoples and nationalities. At this point, they don't, they don't know and quite frankly, they don't seem to care. But there's something different about Esther. So there's, she stands out as you said. So all of these fair virgins are brought to the palace and from all stations and they gather there and they are to stay there for 12 months. They call it uh, purification must be accomplished and also part of that experience for them was learning the ways of the court. They had to learn how to behave in a palace. That was a big job. So it was interesting to me that um, in verse 13, then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given to her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. So I'm assuming you pick out all the jewelry or the, the beautiful linens or gowns or whatever it was that they felt would make them beautiful. But in verse 15, it says, Esther required nothing. She required nothing. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto the king. Which, by the way, Joy, this, this is a good point to pause and think about. The world that we live in kind of does a similar thing as what's going on here. There are a lot of decorations that, that the world offers us, and it's not always having to do with beauty. Sometimes it's, it's accolades of the world, it's money, it's position, it's titles, it's it's socioeconomic status, and they give you all these things that you can pursue and you can put on. I love this story because the, the deliverer of the story, this, this, this Cinderella story, if you will, a, a, an orphaned girl who's a Jew, nobody really knows her, comes out of, comes out of the blue, and she doesn't, she's not drawn to all of that that the world's offering her. She seems comfortable in her own skin. She seems to be content with who she is. And for the young women and young men in the church today, I think that's a pretty powerful message for us, is to not seek our, our praise and our beauty and, and the things that the world offers, because boy, it, it's offering it, mm -hmm. but to rather turn to the Lord and get our, our marching orders from Him and to be comfortable with who we are moving forward doing, doing the things that, that are within our power to, to accomplish. Well said. And my assumption is that they weren't accustomed to seeing that. And then they, that's probably why she stood out so much, because she was peaceful and at ease with who she was and didn't need those outer things to, to make her feel whole. Look at, look at the beautiful wording in verse 17. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Again, like you said earlier with, with the example of Joseph in Egypt, to gain great favor by the king, which then opens all kinds of doors down the road to save uh, an entire group of, of her extended family, the, these tribes of Israel that are there still in, in exile. So, he makes his decision, he set upon her head the royal crown, and he made her queen 
instead of Vashti. And then he makes another great feast. Wow, this king likes feasting, doesn't he? He really does. Yes, good food. So they all gathered together, and verse 20 gives us a hint. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. Mordecai had told her, don't, don't tell them who you really are. Keep that a secret. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. So, here she is, she's the new queen, and nobody has any idea what her background and her nationality are, which then sets the stage for another domino. It's as if whoever's telling this story, they're intentionally putting things in place, and sometimes they have to kind of take a tangent to get a domino in place. (laughs) These last few verses of chapter 2 are one of those tangents. It seems kind of out of place. We were just talking about Esther getting this, and all of a sudden we jump out to the gate with Mordecai. Oh, but it's so exciting. This was not an accident. This was a really key step in this in this story. While Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains were talking, and he overheard them because they were plotting to kill the king. So Mordecai gets a message to Esther to make sure that Esther knows so she can warn the king. Interesting, interesting. This will play very importantly as we continue through the story. When uh, Inquisition was made in verse 23, it was found out, therefore, both of these men were hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king, and that's key to remember as well. That's right. (laughs) That little detail, most are like, well, of course it got written. Who cares? Well, if it hadn't gotten written, then the rest of the the miracle down the road wouldn't be able to play out, because there's going to be a night when the king won't be able to sleep and somebody's going to read this to him. So, just hold that thought as we now jump into chapter 3. So, this is where Haman enters. Every good story needs a villain. A villain, don't they? Yes. And Haman is about as good of a villain, or as bad. Uh, how, yeah, how do we say probably that? bad. As probably bad of a bad. villain as you're going to see. This guy, he's a work. He's, <laughs> you, you'll notice, he is an Agagite. Now, the last time you heard about Agag, or this group of people, they're, they're Canaanites who were in the land of Canaan when the children of Israel came through the Jordan River with, with Joshua, and they're part of this group that was supposed to be driven out of the land. You think there might be some cultural clashing when, when this Agagite is going to eventually find out that Mordecai is a Jew? This group that tried to displace them from off of their, their land in Canaan? he's not going to be a fan of the Jewish people, as we see in the rest of this story. So, what happens in verse 2, it says, all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Which, by the way, just as a side note, if you ever find yourself in a situation of power and you want people to show their reverence to you by bowing down to you or or paying some sort of obeisance to you, then I would just say be really, really careful because the only people we know in scriptures who, who demand that kind of thing are usually types and shadows of the devil because that's all Satan ever wanted in the pre-mortal life in the first place was for us to give him all of the power, all of the glory. And, and to lift him up at our expense, and that seems, so Mordecai not, not bowing down 
it, it's almost this defiance to, to the devilish um, tactic that Haman is, is playing out here. I want the power. I want people to bow down to me. And he's not going to give it to him. No, and I think Mordecai, he was a good man. And he honored and loved the Lord. He was a faithful Jew. And there was no way he would submit to worshiping another man. There was, that was not in his nature to do that. He knew who he worshiped and who he would reverence, and it was not Haman. And you can imagine one of those, the first time it happens, it's like, okay, maybe, maybe he didn't understand the second time, the third time, and it's happening multiple times. You can picture them asking, why are you bowing down? This is Haman. You have to bow down to him. And eventually they figure out, he, he probably told them, because I'm a Jew and I refuse to bow down to anybody but my God. At the bottom of verse 4 it tells you that, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Well, at that point something switches for Haman. When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Are you noticing in scriptures, whenever you get people who are progressing along the covenant path, trying to become more like Jesus, they're going to become more peacemaking. They're going to be more merciful, more long-suffering, kinder, gentler, more firm when needed, but it's never in a wrathful way. But when people turn themselves over to the influence of the adversary, it often leads them down this path to become more like him. And you're watching that happen right in front of our very, very eyes here on this page, that Haman becomes full of wrath. Well, that's a word that scriptures describe Lucifer when, when his offering isn't accepted up in heaven. He, his countenance fell and he becomes angry and filled with wrath. So, perhaps a little invitation to all of us is consider as we move forward in our relationships, the degree to which we allow ourselves to, to continually get stirred up in, in wrath and in anger versus my favorite primary song, I'm trying to be like Jesus in all that I do and say. It, it just has a totally different feeling to it. And our prophet is teaching us to avoid conflict and wrath and anger and hatred. We just heard that so beautifully. Yeah. From him. So, he takes out, check this out, he has an issue with one man. So, what does he do? He then multiplies it and extends it out. Verse 6, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So now he's going to take his hatred for one man and extend it out to everybody that that man now represents, his whole, his whole tribe, so to speak, of, of not just Benjamin, but Judah, the whole kingdom of these Israelites that that's live. That's wrath. That's wrath. That's wrath. <laughs> that's, that's unbridled wrath, mm -hmm. right? And now you get introduced to how he picks um, the timeline for when he's going to set forth his plan to destroy them. In verse 7, it tells you that he cast poor. They, they cast some dice or they cast some lots to, to randomly pick, okay, what month are we going to set up to destroy the Jews? And it just happened to be the 12th month, way down the road from where they currently are. And you say, well, that was just coincidence. The dice were really nice to them. Or are the Lord's fingerprints on that one as well? <laughs> Again, again it happens. 
it turns into a great blessing because it provides time for Esther and Mordecai and the Jews. Now, it's interesting because Haman saw it, though, as, as a positive because he thought, oh, the Jews will be afraid when they find out that they're going to be killed. And so many of them will just pick up and leave. They'll hurry away and move away and leave all of their possessions. And then I can go and, and capture those and bring them to the king's treasury. So with all of this master plan going on in his mind, he, he doesn't have the authority to pass the law. And he doesn't give all of the details to the king. He just goes to him and he, he says, notice the wording here in verse 8. There is a certain people scattered abroad. He doesn't say which group or where they're from or what they're doing. Specifically, he just says, they're dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And you saw how widespread this kingdom is. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. And so he talks the king into passing this law, and the king just gives him his ring, the signet, to sign into law. Whatever, Do whatever you want to do with that group of people. They sound like a nuisance. Let's, yeah, take care of it. So Haman's master plan is now put into place with the date on the calendar in verse 12 saying, Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants. So we're in that first month, and because of the poor that was cast, the lot that was cast, we now know that in the twelfth month, and keep in mind they use a, a lunar cycle, a, a lunar calendar, 28-day month in most of these ancient settings. Um, so it, it gives us that time. And they now send out that law to all parts of the province, and all of the Jews get the word that the clock is ticking for you. May I read that in verse 13? Please do. It's so profound. To destroy, to kill, and to cause perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month. It was genocide is what they were really considering. This is probably a good place to pause and take a little, a little time out and point out, if we're not careful, what ends up happening when we read scripture like this in the Old Testament? or even in the Book of Mormon or the New Testament, we can get so excited about the, the details and the facts from, from thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away, that we could, we could get so enthralled there that we miss some of the power of Scripture, which is when you don't just see the fingerprints of God or these, this invisible hand setting up these dominoes for Esther and Mordecai, but those should become placeholders, types and shadows for your life, right here, right now, today, to say, wait a minute, our God changes not, and he, he does his work throughout time in a variety of ways, some of them really open and miraculous, and some very subtle and very behind the scenes. So as we, as we continue through this story, we hope that somewhere in all of this, you're seeing in your own world that we live in today where God has been setting up dominoes in your life to prepare you for some things. And maybe it feels bizarre, some of the things that have been happening to you recently or in the past, but if you plead with heaven for eyes to see and for a heart to, to feel and to recognize, then you're more likely to, to see the hand of God guiding and shaping your life just as it did theirs all these years ago. That's beautiful.
So Mordecai hears the news. He rents his clothes and puts on sackcloth with ashes and is mourning a bitter cry. And he came before the king's gate. And so news gets out. There is mourning among the Jews, fasting and weeping and wailing, and many in sackcloth and ashes. So in verse 4, Esther's maids and her chamberlains come and they tell her what's happening. So she finds out about Mordecai and she sends raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. And then in verse 5, then called Esther for one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was. Why, why is this? What's happening? And so Mordecai tells him of everything that's happening, this sum of money that Haman has promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews if, if the Jews are destroyed. And also he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree. Um, Esther sees it. She's and, and then is charged to, um, that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make a request before him for her people. Now, this is where it gets pretty interesting. This really, honestly, this is the part of the story where if you've, if you only know a few details about Esther and her story, it's probably from this, these last five, six, seven verses of chapter four. Mm -hmm. This is really kind of the, the crux of the whole story where, um, where Esther has some pretty major, uh, quite frankly, life-threatening decisions to make. Yes, it was. It, it could have been death. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, it hasn't been that long since she knows that she replaced Vashti. <laughs> yes, she it could be very present on her mind, yes. And this king doesn't seem to be really uh, steady and, and very methodical in his thinking. He seems to maybe be a little more uh, sporadic and, and a bit unpredictable at times, and so it's going to add to the complexity here of what's going to now happen. Okay, so here we are. Esther then is, she knows, and let's go to verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king should hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in with the king these 30 days. So she was probably feeling a little bit overlooked, maybe questioning a little bit what the king's feelings were about her, but she knew the law. And that was a frightening thing to think, I'm being asked to go before the king without being called and without seeing him for 30 days. But then what's so stirring is Mordecai's words. In verse 13, Mordecai commanded to answer uh, Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I have heard that question since I was a little girl and loved Esther for that very question. So, so this is fascinating to me, Joy, because as, as you have uh, studied this book of this incredible woman from, you know, 3,000 years ago, 
the fact is she came, she was sent from heaven to the earth for such a time as this. But the amazing thing is, is you were sent to the earth for such a time as this, and you've been able to do some pretty remarkable things. And I'm curious if there's if there's any sense of Esther, the spirit of Esther that you could share with us, where you've gone into situations, whether it be go to a foreign country, or go speak in a general conference, or go into a meeting with prophets, seers, and revelators, or meet with little children in a, in a little branch of some obscure corner of the world, where you felt like, I, I can't do this, but then this sense of, you're not going in alone, you have God on your side. That's right, that's right. I have seen it in many places in the world, and I have had so many sisters come to me and say, I have been feeling impressed to do something, something that's a little bit outside their comfort zone or something outside their normal routine. I could give you a list of all of the things that have been shared with me, but the remarkable thing is it's in service to our God. They're trying to find ways to build the kingdom, to gather Israel, to follow the Savior, and to bring about this wonderful Zion that we look forward to and prepare for the second coming of our Savior. And it's so exciting when every woman can put herself in Esther's place and say, there is no question, I am here now for a reason. I have a work to do and to trust that God will guide me in that work. Esther that. is just our sister. She's just, I just can't wait to meet her and hug her and thank her for that vivid reminder that we all have a purpose here and there are no accidents as to when we came or what, you know, I think of her, she was probably very submissive initially, very um, quiet, um, you know, propi propriety and, and maybe even a little bit shy. I don't know. She, she was very obedient to Mordecai. She lived a quiet life. And then suddenly this occasion arises and leadership came out of her this power, and it was there, but I don't know if she knew it yet. And through this experience, look at what was accomplished, and, and there's so much more. We're just beginning this another row of dominoes, because this was, this was the beginning. If you, in your mind's eye, could picture whatever you think Esther looked like, if you could picture her joining us today, what do you think she might say? Do you, do you think she would say, oh, let me tell you how terrible and, and anxious and fearful this experience was? For, do you think she would mention any of that? Or do you think she would say, this was hard, but oh, I wish I had 10,000 lives to give the Lord over and over and over again in situations like this where I had to get out of my comfort zone and go and do something that was very, very difficult for me and put my trust in the Lord, even though once again, God's name isn't being mentioned in this story anywhere, but you feel it. It's there. There's this quiet uh, faith in God, this, this confidence in the Lord, this hope for deliverance that, that undergirds this entire story that I think if she were standing here, I think she would say, you know what? I could have stayed silent. I could have kept my my heritage a secret, and I could have sat back and enjoyed a life of ease in, in a king's palace for, what, 20, 
30 years most, maybe 40 if she's lucky, and then what? If you take all the very finest that this world had to offer back then, she could have just quietly enjoyed that and watched the rest of her people be destroyed and say, well, it stinks to be them. I, I'm not going to put my life on the line. But I love the fact that she's, she's listening to Mordecai's uh, reasoning here. Did you like that line when he said, perhaps their deliverance, the deliverance to the Jews will arise from another place? Yes. In other words, Mordecai is saying, the Jews are going to be delivered. But who knows, Esther? It might be you as a domino in all of their lives. So see, here we've been talking about the Lord placing dominoes incognito into our life. What if we took the perspective when we go to church, or when we go on a ministering visit, or when we fulfill our calling, or when we go to work? It doesn't have to be religious, re religiously related. It could be any interaction. What if we took the perspective of, Lord, help me to be a domino in a positive direction for people that I interact with today? What a difference that would make in our wards, in our stakes, in our homes, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, at school, wherever we may find ourselves, if we're, if we're keeping this perspective of, who knoweth but what? I was sent, and you were sent, and we were all sent to the kingdom for such a time as this. May I just add that in some of our most difficult decisions, at least I have found this in my life, that is where the greatest growth comes, and that's where we discover God. We discover our eternal Father in heaven in ways that are not possible otherwise. It's, it's a remarkable thing to look back at hard things. Um, I remember the first time I was preparing to, to speak in general conference, and I just thought, I will die. I will stand <laughs> at the pulpit, and I will die. But that was not the Lord's will. He was there to hold me up. He was there to help me do something I couldn't do. That was not something that I was gifted at, but He allowed me to have that experience. And that's what He does for all of us. But sometimes we have to step out of our comfort zone just a little bit. Maybe it's not risking our life, but maybe it's speaking up. Maybe it's, if I perish, I perish. Well, maybe it's, if I say this, I'll lose friends. If I speak up for the truth, maybe people won't like me. It's, it's different for all of us, but His love and His power is the same with all of us. He's there to bless us and enable us to do things that we don't think we can do. I love that. Now, <clears throat> these next few verses, they teach another principle that's that's kind of vital, I think, for all of us if we're really striving to see the hand of the Lord in our life and to be the hand of the Lord in the lives of other people. Um, you'll notice Esther doesn't, doesn't get this uh, a prideful or a cocky stance of, give me this mountain, I'll take care of it, I got this, I got this everybody, I'm going to be the heroine of the story, I'm, I want my name to be the, the one that's blasted out there. You'll notice there's none of that going on with Esther. She, this experience doesn't increase her pride, the increase of faith actually decreases her pride and increases her humility and her meekness and her recognition, I can't do this alone. I can't. I need help. Isn't it beautiful? I love verse 16 so much 
because she says, Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat ye nor drink three days, nor night or day. Also, and my maiden, or I and my maidens will fast likewise. Now, see, to me, I thought immediately, there's, there's my tribe, there are my group, my, my group of friends, they're right there to support, strengthen, to fast with me, to pray with me. That is so real. That is so real to me. Um, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, again, recognizing how dangerous this is. And she says, and if I perish, I perish. She was literally saying, I may not live through this but I am going to be submissive to my, to my Father in Heaven. She had to be led by the Spirit. She immediately, well, and it tells, it tells me so much about her character anyway, that she went straight to fasting and prayer. And we all need to combine our faith before we do this. So it was a, yes, very humble. Which, by the way, when you're, when you're struggling with anything in life. It could be health-related, it could be spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, relational, and financial, any of these struggles. When you, when you invoke the faith of loved ones, yes. or those, in, as you, I love it, in your tribe, that, that, that circle of people who are with you, they're, they're in this struggle with you. There's something powerful about an individual fasting and praying. Ooh, but there's something just powerful about a whole group of people uniting their faith, turning heavenward, saying, please help. We can't do this alone. We are not our own savior. It, it was never intended that we, that we fix everything ourselves independent of heaven. And so, this is, a, this is this beautiful moment where they all band together, and then that concluding statement that she makes, and if I perish, I perish. Great faith. Great faith. So, chapter 5, here's the, here's the moment we've waited for. So, after the third day of fasting, Esther puts on all of her royal apparel, and she went and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house, and he was sitting on his royal throne, over against the gate of the house. Because keep in mind, in, in Old Testament times, the king or the ruler or the, the, the person who's in authority always sits at the gate. That's just the place. And so, she's standing there, and verse 2 says, And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. Now, you'll notice how quickly we went from verse 1 to 2. She's coming in, and she's standing there, a little bit nervous, and he sees her, and he's pleased, and he's not going to have her killed, and we're like, oh, okay, well, we're, we're good. We, we kind of knew the end of the story, so we weren't really nervous. But I can tell you that Mordecai and Esther and all of the, the inner circle of her closest associates and those who had been fasting for her, they were nervous. They didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And I love that, that as we go through our life, when you find yourself in a trough of life, in a trial, in a tribulation, and you don't know the end of the story, and it can be nerve-wracking and frustrating, if instead of focusing on the fear and the anxiety, if we can just keep our focus on the Lord and move forward best we can, trusting that God knows the end of the story, and he's probably not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh no, that, that's just not the God we worship. The God we worship knows the end from the beginning, and as we give him our life 
in our heart, then the best case scenario works out, even if it may not physically work out the way we had intended. In this case, it is going to work out the way we wanted. Beautiful application for us, though. Thanks. That's so powerful. So, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of someone we, we love very much, our prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, who's taught us a term, spiritual momentum. Does that apply here today or what? That is what this story is all about, which is also what our lives are all about. We are all seeking to gain spiritual momentum as we seek the Lord's guidance in all that we do, as we trust Him in all that we do. And I want to introduce you to a special guest who's joining us today. Here I am speaking as a guest. I love welcoming this. A guest. This is great. <laughs> this is my dear friend, Patty Rokas. And you'll know, you'll recognize Patty because she brought rock art to the world in the primary friend to friend. And she came today to share with you some rock art related to our dear sister Esther. So before you, you jump into the rock art, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on Esther oh, yes. for yourself. Mm. Yes. Well, as I was listening to Joy and Tyler talk about Esther and how we can all be Esthers, I thought, that is so true. I, I was at a point in my life where I was looking for the next thing I needed to do, and I went on this hiking trip, and there were just these beautiful rocks everywhere. I had no experience with rocks, and I picked up the rocks, and that was the beginning of being able to tell the stories of Jesus with rocks and pebbles. So I chose at that moment to pick up the rock, and for such a time as this, you know, who would think to use rocks to testify of Jesus. Each one of us has our own particular situation where there's a rock before us. There's a child. There's a mother. There's a person to serve. There's an opportunity. Will we pick it up and testify of Jesus and do our best with that opportunity? I feel like, as you were saying, we're each Esther's. I thought, we are. No matter how small the opportunity, we all have an opportunity to serve. And we could never plan for it, we could have never have guessed that's what our job or opportunity would be. But in the moment, we take that opportunity and we do the best we can with our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is, this is a unique opportunity. We're going to get to see you uh, do some rock art for this story of Esther. I would love that. So I collected a bunch of rocks and I thought, well, how do you depict the story? And it's kind of obvious, right? There's a king and there's Mordecai, who I would love to portray, and Esther. And so let's just build out maybe the king with his scepter touching Esther and making her safe before him in the court. Now, these are just the stuff that you find out hiking or by rivers, oceans. That's the favorite place because they're rounded off and smooth often. But I did find these beautiful, big, chunky rocks. So we're going to build the king first. And I always like to have a platform to put him on. And I thought this just looked like a neat robe, perhaps. Turn them around. And we'll need a head for the king. So if any of you see something that looks like a head for the king, go for it. I'll put a robe on him. How would we like to... Robes are usually flat at the back. Is that like a head with a crown? Oh, look at that. A head with a crown. See, she's brilliant. I never would have thought <laughs> of it. You found the rock. That. <laughs> that would work, but I chose to go harder and use this. Maybe he had a little bit of hair, a little longer back oh, then. Okay. And if we were to build a crown, maybe we could just put some triangles on top. Oh, maybe yes. you want to try putting a few I think crowny I things even, on there. This is this is uh, something I could even do. Oh, that's looking good. Oh, that looks look good. Look at that. And if you maybe well put done. the big one in the middle, it might look really cool too. Well, you'd have to be an artist to know that. 
maybe some hands. I love these little rocks are in the gravel. And I love mm. to find little rocks for hands and feet. And maybe this could be a foot or a duck's head, but maybe a foot too. Oh, look we'll how that cane just came alive. Well, I practiced a couple times <laughs> when I made it and tried a lot of things. And then we need a scepter for the king. Yes. So I just broke this little branch off and we have a scepter because we know why was the scepter important in the story? Yes. He reached, he, he put the scepter out for her to touch and she wasn't expecting that. That's what she needed to know that everything was okay. And that was the law at the time. If he didn't put that scepter out, then she was in trouble. She was a goner. Mm -hmm. Beautiful rock for maybe a skirt. Mm -hmm. or so many things. Did you turn your rocks around? Tyler you doesn't look for skirt rocks very often. I, yeah, they're, they're not my specialty. <laughs> when I wanted to make Esther, I always pray before I make a piece of rock art. And I had no idea how could I make a beautiful looking woman in rocks. Mm -hmm. And I never would have thought of a shawl, you know. Oh. But when I put these two rocks together, I thought, oh my heavens, oh, isn't that, that elegant? So, Heavenly That's Father, beautiful. I think he sends angels to organize the rocks. Mm. It's a partnership for sure. And then, what do you see here, Joy? That's Esther. <laughs> I see Esther's head and her hair. Exactly. I usually use a round rock for a head, but I wanted her long, beautiful, flowing hair, and there it was. And then we can, maybe you could put some hands on Esther. I'll put her legs on. Her little feet, just long rocks again in the gravels where you find your okay, hands. How and do feet. you make her hands? Oh, there you like go. That? Yeah, Is like that. Is that what oh, you king. I like or it. She's she's a little nervous when she comes in. Let's see. Oh, I like that. The little hands coming out of her Place shawl. Her a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Anybody can do rock art. <laughs> you just have to play with them. And for adults, it's harder. And for kids, it's a lot easier. Are you saying we don't know how to play? <laughs> uh -huh. We've kind of lost some of us. Have right. kind of lost it. So I hope you can see Esther in there with her hands out, petitioning oh, the king. Yes, is what I and leaning yes. back a little bit, and then we would have the king reaching out for her to touch her oh, and let beautiful. her know that she's safe. That is beautiful, Patty. Thank you. This is amazing because it reminds me of of the Savior's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, oh, when when the Pharisees. And, and the, the chief priests of the people tell him to, to quiet the people down because of what they're, they're yelling, this, this Hosanna shout to him. And he says, well, if I were to quiet them down, then the very rocks would cry out. Um, it's fascinating, fascinating when, when you give rocks a voice in, in this metaphorical way. All things really can denote that there is a God and that... Uh, he, he is a God of creation. This is, this is amazing. <laughs> I would never look at a pile of rocks and think, I could, I could paint a scene here. It's fascinating. Well, it's now wonderful to see the children all over the world yes. doing this. And yes. they are. We did they it are. in Friend to Friend mm -hmm. in 2021. Mm -hmm. And um, the children are doing it. The, the adults are a little more intimidated. They're like, I'm not an artist. And the children aren't. And as we pray and ask for partnership and help, from the Spirit, it is another way to start learning how to hear the voice of the Lord, how to hear Him when we work with Him to create things. And I've learned so much about how much Heavenly Father loves me that He would help me make a piece of art and that joy of feeling that father-daughter relationship. And I hope that we can bring that to our children when we bring rock art to them to let them create also. Mm. Beautiful illustration, though, of this whole message. Thank you. Thank you. I can't take any credit. Beautiful. <laughs>
Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for letting me join you. Well, that was a treat. To, to get to see that that rock art depiction of this this throne scene between Esther and the king. So as you notice, as she comes in to the king and, and as that scepter is extended, she, she doesn't reveal the whole problem. She doesn't try to solve everything at once. She takes it very slowly, line upon line. She's gonna, going to allow the natural events to take place. And in our own life today, I think that's a that's an important thing to keep in mind because sometimes we can feel completely overwhelmed. I I would imagine that when you got called to be the general primary president, yes. that you probably looked at the to-do list of the job description and probably thought, I was overwhelmed. How in the world can anybody do that? Mm-hmm. But what did you do? Well, as you were talking, I was just thinking, isn't that how revelation works though? Sometimes we get just enough revelation to take a step forward. We don't have to see to the end of the road, but we keep trusting. It comes back to, are we trusting? Are we listening? Are we letting him guide all of these wonderful occurrences in our lives? Love it. And and so in, in your particular instance, you surrounded yourself with some incredible counselors who, by the way, both got taken away from you <laughs> fairly soon. So was that the thereafter. wrong choice? I'm not sure. Or maybe that was the Lord putting a domino in place for each of those incredible women to prepare them for assignments oh. that they didn't maybe know were coming at that time. Absolutely. I know that with all my heart. Yes. It's a beautiful example. So, in this case, you'll notice there's something powerful about just doing what you can do today and let that be enough and, and leave the rest at the feet of the Savior and say, I'm going to keep chipping away at this. And that's what Esther's doing. So, she just comes in and she simply says, hey, um, verse 4, if it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. So, it's this, it's this, service opportunity. Hey, I've prepared a banquet for you and Haman. Would, would you come? That's and what we sisters do. We cook. <laughs> <laughs> the, way to, to, the way to a man's heart through his, through his stomach, right? Yes. That's, and yes. she knows this king very well and is feasting. Yes. <laughs> so, notice when we get to that banquet of wine in verse 6, it says, what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom, it shall be performed. He just opened the door for her to say, I'll give you anything you want, even to the half of the kingdom. What do you want? And even then, she didn't reveal everything yet, which is an interesting, raises an interesting question of timing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it certainly does. Because if we continue, uh, let's see, let's go ahead and just go over to, it talks, well, yes, Haman goes and talks to his wife, but let's go over to the beginning of chapter six, because this is when. Okay, so it's that night, the king has gone to bed, and he's having trouble sleeping. Now, think of this as another domino, okay? This is not an accident that he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And guess what he was reminded of in verse 2? And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, the two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door who sought to lay hand on the king, Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? It was as if he was reminded, We didn't do anything great to celebrate that Mordecai saved my life. We've got to do something. And what is the most, 
ironic experience here in scriptures. We read in verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? And Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai. Okay, so he's coming with that intention. But then Haman, excuse me, Haman came in and the king said unto him in verse 6, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? The king doesn't say Mordecai's name. He says the man that we want to honor. Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor? More than to myself. So they're in agreement. Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And then verse 8, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king uh, useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal, which is set upon his head. And bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thou shalt it be, excuse me, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. <laughs> what do you think Haman thought of that? You can picture his jaw just dislocating. <laughs> it didn't drop. It just like falls. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yes, a bit of shock. So if shock. I could point out something here, the, the entire book of Esther, it has in, in the King James Version, it has 10 chapters, right? So you go from, from chapter 1 to chapter 10. And for those of you who, who really enjoy um, uh, ancient Hebrew literary structure kinds of things, you'll notice that the entire book of Esther comes to us in a chiastic structure. It's a chiasm. So there, there are a lot of similar elements that come in. Well, the middle point of this chiastic structure is that verse that you just read. It's the turning point of where Haman, he's got this gallows built to, to hang Mordecai, and he's come to get him, and then he finds out, oh, it's, the king's going to honor somebody great, and he lays out what he should do, and the turning point is when the king says, oh, yeah, do all of what you just said to Mordecai, and then he lists those things again. Get the horse, get the royal apparel, and have get the crown, ride through the and street. have him ride through the streets. All those things that that Haman had listed now get repeated as we come back out, and all of these destruction of the Jews end up as salvation of the Jews. And all of the feasting and prosperity, it ends with prosperity. You're going to see some patterns, and if you want to get into it on your own, you'll notice it doesn't line up verse for verse. It's, it's a little more loose than that, but this, this incredible turning point of the entire story here turning on this ironic moment, came right there in chapter 6. As now Haman, of all people, has to be the one to go and put all of these rewards from the king onto Mordecai, his, his mortal enemy, and parade him through the, the streets of the city. I think verse 12 sums it up well, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. We know where he was, what yeah, he was he's, feeling. He's pretty upset. Yes. But in the midst of his in the midst of his frustration, there comes this additional invitation to come to a second feast, right? And verse 14 says, And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now we're ready to 
to complete this process of revealing to the king what's actually been going on kind of behind the scenes, this plot by Haman to destroy all of Esther's people. So we jump into chapter 7. Yes. And again, remarkably, the king says, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? So here is the opportunity. Then Esther the queen, in verse 3, answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. And so she goes on to explain, this is what's happening. And the king's saying, so, so who in the world is making this plot against you and your people? Who, who is that? Yes, yes. Well, you've got a banquet of three. And Esther turns to him and says, well, the person who's done that is right here. The adversary and enemy. Is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. So the king arises from the banquet in his wrath, and he went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to, to plead for his life. He knows this isn't going well for him with Esther, and he saw there was evil determined against him by the king. And when the king returns into the place of the banquet of wine, Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was, and so uh, he is sent to the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai, and Mordecai's destruction now becomes the destruction for his own life. Um, oh, the irony is thick. He that doeth iniquity doeth it unto himself. Is that a familiar Book of Mormon scripture? Yeah, and that's exactly what we're seeing play out right here with Haman, is he, he had these big plans, but they didn't play out. Kind of like the devil had really big plans up in heaven, yes. they didn't play out. He has no power to play them out, even though he tries to convince us that he has that power. I thought it was interesting that he had the gallows made. They were much taller than typically done. They were 75 feet high. And it ends up, because he wanted Mordecai to be an example of to the Jews, and it ended up that Haman was hung on those very gallows. Wonderful. So now, since the king, in their culture at that time, he can't undo or, or erase or veto an existing law on their books, their, the form of their constitution, whatever that looked like, prohibited that. So what the king does instead is he says, tell you what, we can just pass a new law to say that the Jews are totally welcome to defend themselves, and we can even facilitate that. So anybody who wants to try to destroy them, they will fight against them at their own peril. And so it's, it's this new law that gets enacted, and Mordecai is honored and, and elevated to this high position of authority, and now that which was a, a sure destruction, this, this period of mourning for the people, now becomes this period of rejoicing, and we're, we're delivered. There, there's hope. We aren't going to have to just be a victim of this law and, and be wiped out completely, and so they, they're able to fight, fight back. So now, you look at this come full circle. Look at verse 24. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur. That, that word in the Hebrew that means lots or dice 
Well, if you put an IM on the end, it becomes plural in English. So we would say pers, or in this case, dice. Mm -hmm. And that word, parim, actually shows up again in verse 26. Wherefore, they call these days purim after the name of pur, which, by the way, was not intended. Th this was such a big deal to the, to the Jews at that time that they didn't want this to be a one a one-time event, good, we, we dodged a bullet there, let's move on and forget about it. No, they wanted this one, this deliverance, kind of similar, not terribly dissimilar, to Passover being this perpetual annual remembrance of how God delivered them. That's right, that's right, a yearly reminder that God saved them. I was fascinated to learn more about Purim. Um, they begin each year. This is typically on St. Patrick's Day, our St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. It's a two-day event, and they begin with the fast of Esther. Doesn't that make sense? So they all fast from sunrise to sundown, and then at sun, after sundown, they go to the synagogue. Okay, now the difference between this and other Jewish holidays is what I really love. It's the number of children that are involved. This is actually called the Children's Night in the House of the Lord. The children come to the synagogue with their parents, and the rabbi reads the story of Esther. This whole story is laid out, and the children come, and they have noisemakers. They're called groggers. And as the, the rabbi reads Haman's name, each time he reads Haman's name, the children boo and hiss, and they, they make their noise with their, their groggers. They make all sorts of noise, and it gets louder and louder because Haman's name is mentioned more and more. And the interesting thing about this is that this is this book of, or excuse me, the, the story of Esther is rep representing the hiddenness of God, as we mentioned before. One of our hymns, Let Us All Press On, reminds us that an unseen power will aid me and you in the glorious cause of truth. In all ten chapters, we mention God's name is not mentioned, but the miracles concealed were orchestrated through divine guidance, through the hidden hand of God. And so, in this Jewish holiday, they wear masks, which symbolize being hidden to resemble how God was masked or hidden throughout the book of Esther. They actually wear masks. It's, it's called the Jewish uh, Halloween. Some people use that term. So, this is a story of tragedy being transformed to triumph because of one woman who stood up and spoke out. And so, that's why this is it's so important to the Jews to celebrate this wonderful holiday to remember that God saved the people, saved the Jews. That's wonderful. It's, it's inspiring to read stories like this where it's not clear at every step. It's not a smooth, paved sidewalk with a guardrail the whole time. There are a lot of cliffs. There's a lot of uphill climbing going on here with Esther and with Mordecai and with these people, and yet they pressed forward. And Joy, you, you mentioned how this is such a big event for the children. It, it causes me to think, what would you say if you could get in a time machine and go back to, say, an eight-year-old Esther mm -hmm. who maybe had just lost her mother and father, and maybe her whole world had just come crumbling in and she didn't know what was going to happen and her, her uncle or her cousin adopts her and raises her as, as his own child, what would you say to that little Esther who has no clue what lies in her future? Hmm. 
the first thing that came to my mind was don't die with your music still in you. <laughs> Just believe that there's a purpose, as I mentioned before, that you have a purpose. Um, in fact, I wanted to share um, talking about um, Mordecai, of course, living in Babylon, literally the physical Babylon, but um, we live in spiritual Babylon. We, we face a different challenge, and I think about this young girl, and I think about young girls that I've seen all over the world, little eight-year-old girls that I've seen all over the world who wonder, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Where, yeah, why am I here? And many in the same situation that you just described of Esther. And yet, God is our God. What a blessing it is to know He knows each and every one of us. We all have a purpose. He will reveal to us in appropriate times and ways and places what it is that He needs us to do in, to, to further His work. It's all Him. It's all Him, but He so lovingly, so graciously, so generously allows us to be a part in some small way. So I would love to hug little eight-year-old <laughs> Esther, believe me. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, I think that's important for us to recognize the fact that God didn't need Esther. He didn't need Mordecai to save the Jews. He could have done something big and miraculous in some gigantic show of cosmic power to save the Jews. But have you noticed that he usually does his work through simple, common people who don't feel extraordinary, who don't feel even heavenly most of the time? They're just, they're just kind of working through life, trying to do the best they can, and he uses them as instruments in his hands to perform some of the most beautiful uh, signs of, of service and miracles that we see on the on the earth. I love that pattern. It, it gives us hope. Don't you wish you could see all those people that are what you just described? I, I wish I could. They're, they're all listening and hopefully recognizing what yeah. you just described. I wish I could see, but I know somebody who can see, and I know he does see. He does. And he recognizes that he's called you. So as we come to the conclusion of this of this book of scripture, Joy, what, what are some of the, the biggest takeaways or some of the, the lessons that you would feel are probably the most important or pertinent to anybody who may be watching this? Okay, I have a thought for the sisters first I'd like to share. Because I mentioned earlier so many so many sisters are feeling impressed to to stretch and do some things maybe they've never done before in building the kingdom. And I wrote down, be wise in selection of good causes as Mordecai, as we too live in Babylon, you know, to recognize, be wise, we can't do it all, and we as women tend to do that. Want we to try do to do it all. Um, but we use the scriptures and modern prophets as our guide. We are here now, not by chance, but by design, and we each have a role to fulfill. And I want to share, I have to share just a couple of lines from President Kimball. To be a righteous woman is a glorious thing in any age. To be a righteous woman during the winding up scenes on this earth, before the second coming of our Savior, is an especially noble calling. The righteous woman's strength and influence today can be tenfold what it might be in more tranquil times. And then President Nelson, commenting, referring to this, so beautifully said, 
I plead with my sisters of the church to step forward, take your rightful and needful place in your home, in your community, and in the kingdom of God, more than you ever have before. I plead with you to fulfill President Kimball's prophecy, and I promise you in the name of Jesus Christ that as you do, excuse me, as you do so, the Holy Ghost will magnify your influence in an unprecedented way. And I have witnessed this all over the world. But the beautiful challenge for us all, this speaks to us as sisters, but the beautiful challenge is recognizing as we were talking about that little eight-year-old, Jesus Christ was once an eight-year-old as well. He grew from grace to grace. He learned, progressed, followed his father, followed his mother, listened to his heavenly father, and grew to become the savior of the world. It's an interesting type as we think about Esther and her preparation to accomplish what the Lord accomplished through her. We are all being prepared. And the important thing, as I mentioned, is, is listening, receiving revelation, listening to the Spirit, being worthy to receive the guidance that the Holy Ghost will bring to each one of us. So this is our season. We have work to do. I, I, think, I think that everybody, if you pause just a moment in your, in your soul, you might be able to hear the words of Mordecai echoing somewhere in your heart, saying to you, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And if you look heavenward, the Lord will define what such a time means for you. For Esther, it involved a pretty important uh, experience with the king. But for you and me, it might involve a pretty important experience with a little child or with a coworker, or with a son or a daughter or a spouse or a grandparent or a parent or somebody in your ward. Uh, the point is, the Lord is in his heavens, even if it's not always out in the open, obvious. In fact, it's sometimes even more powerful when it's incognito, when you have to stretch and look for his hand to be able to recognize it and see it. We don't all see a sea parted, do we? No. <laughs> I'm so grateful for the scriptures. I love studying the Old Testament. It has been remarkable to me to realize that everything is, is a shadowing. It's a, it's a type of, of Jesus Christ. It just seems like everything I've been studying, I just am so drawn to my Savior. Through the Old Testament, of course, through the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, the Pearl of Great Price, I just marvel at what we are learning in these amazing stories, situations, experiences, trials, and triumphs. It is such a witness to me that God is in his heaven, that he looks out for us. He's given us his word to study, to learn, to grow. And I'm grateful today for my sweet sister Esther and what she has taught me. I'm grateful for that. And I pray that I can follow the example that not only she has set, but the example my Savior has set for me, that I can follow him always. And I leave my testimony with you that he lives in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Know that you're loved. Thank you.